guys for being here on this a little bit warmer day than you'd expect in September in this building. Um, we love being here in Sheridan School and the opportunity we have to worship God here freely. I love that they're celebrating the diversity of this school. Uh, this is one of the most diverse schools as far as the student body that exists in Minneapolis, which is a huge celebration and a wonderful thing for the kids here. Um, before I can start uh, jumping into the scripture today, let's just pray and thank God for this opportunity we have to be here and pray God's blessing over this place. Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who promises to be with us, that you are Emmanuel, you are the with us God, and we pray that you would be here in this school uh, and you would be drawing near to these kids, to these teachers, this faculty and staff. Uh, it, is, it is difficult to come and learn and it is difficult to teach kids and to create an environment for learning. And God, I pray that you would fill those teachers, uh, those faculty, the parents of these kids, fill them with your strength. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be here and to worship you, and we ask that your presence would not only be here now, but would continue to be here in this school and that it would make a difference, God. We thank you and we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, we are in the middle of a conversation that we're calling For the Sake of the World. For the Sake of the World. And we're asking a question which is, what is the role of Christians in relationship to the world? And if you look back over the last couple of weeks, we encourage you to listen back. We've engaged this topic in a number of ways, but we're specifically asking this question in regards to our vocational lives, okay? So specifically our work lives. And we recognize that work looks like a lot of different things for the people here in this room. For some of you, it looks like maybe what people would assume going to a job in a specific location. Some of you work your job from home. Some of you, your job is to caretake for kids or older adults in need. Uh, some of you, your job is to learn right now. You are in school, and that is your main vocation. For some of you, your main vocation right now is looking for a job, and that is work too, isn't it? And so when we're asking the question, uh, what is the role of Christians in relationship to the world when it comes to vocation, we're talking about all of those areas. So apply it to what that looks like for you. And what we've talked about the last couple of weeks is the calling that we have as the people of God, to be set apart and sent into the world that God loves. To be set apart and sent into the world that God loves. Which is different than be set apart and withdraw from the world because it's scary, right? It's also different than jump into the world and not think about what it means to be a Christian in the world. So we've been talking about that tension because it certainly is one. We have a purpose. We are invited to join God because God loves the world. We join God's mission for the sake of the world that God loves. This is an invitation that we have to join God in his work through our vocations and other areas of our life. So uh, today, um, I asked you this question, what parts of your vocation do you like and dislike? And I'm not sure which one, like maybe some of you lean towards sharing what you liked and some of you lean towards sharing what you disliked. When I thought about the question, I went right to what I dislike. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, and I have a number of different vocations, but I thought about my vocations in the past and I realized something kind of weird. Uh, every single job, nearly every single job I've ever had has involved cleaning toilets. And including this one, okay? <laughs> it's involved cleaning toilets uh, when they overflow. Um, it's also involved trying to shut off rushing toilets, which I did last Sunday in the toilet over there. And uh, it's also involved some really messy circumstances like uh, urinals that overflow and you have to wade through ankle deep water to turn it off. You're welcome for that visual. Urinal water. For whatever reason, it's a part of every vocation that I have. So I'm at this point assuming that God's going to use that somehow in my life to keep me humbled, or I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it is definitely on the list of things I dislike the most about 
every job I've ever had is whatever situation I seem to have to have with the toilet, all right? It's not my favorite. It's pretty interesting because uh, there's a lot of studies done on job satisfaction and what people like and dislike about their job, and I just found a couple that I thought were really interesting. Uh, people on LinkedIn, do you know what LinkedIn is? So this is like an online way to kind of put your, your resume out there. I think a lot of times people are looking for other jobs or kind of hoping that maybe somebody will be like, hey, you seem interesting, come work for us. I'm, I'm not totally sure. Um, but on LinkedIn, they did a study recently and it said that 80% of people on LinkedIn either kind of don't like their job or hate their job, somewhere between kind of don't like to hate. 80%, which might be why they're on LinkedIn, because they're just kind of like, please, anybody, take me out of here. Um, but that is an interesting stat, in my opinion. There's also a, a, a now like kind of an overall vocational study that was done a few years ago on job satisfaction, showing that job satisfaction has been steadily declining over the last 20, 30, 40 years for various reasons. And at this point, people who would say they can tolerate their job is only at 47%, okay? Everybody else dislikes to hates, all right, in, in general. So this is not just the LinkedIn population, but job satisfaction in the US overall based on research. So that means that over 50% of all of you <laughs> actually dislike most of what you're doing in your job to the point where you'd say, I am dissatisfied with this experience in a lot of different ways. Isn't that interesting that people dislike their job that severely? And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you're in the 47% who are satisfied or the 53% who aren't. Those add up to 100, right? Okay, I'm not a math person. I'm not gonna ask you to designate which one you are, but I bet you can kind of know if you're one of those or if you're kind of on the fence in your job satisfaction. And I, I think there's actually some pretty deep theological reasons why we have such a hard time with our work. There are some, some parts of what God has done in the world and the way that humans have responded to God that have created the, the difficulties around our work life. Because if you haven't experienced difficulties in your work life, it's kind of like you will. It's not if, it's a when, right? I want to look at a couple different passages to talk about this. And today I want to focus on a topic uh, within this conversation on for the sake of the world of the role we have to play as Christians in resisting evil, okay? And I realize that's a big phrase and I'm going to unpack it, but what does it mean for us as people who follow Jesus? What is our role in resisting evil in the world? And I think it's at the core, this, this question is at the core of why work is so hard. It's at the core of why we often are dealing with these challenges in our work and other parts of our life that we face. I think this, this question of the, the role of resisting evil is at the core. So I'm going to look at a, two different passages, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament to kind of unpack this for us. So I want to start in Genesis, okay? The beginning of the story. What happened at the beginning of the story that shapes our theological understanding of evil and the role of work and some of that? So if you turn to Genesis 3, I'm going to read that in a second, but let me just kind of tee it up for you. So some of you are familiar with the story in Genesis of creation. And in Genesis 2, by the time we get to chapter 2, God's creating the world and everything in it, and he creates humans. He calls them very good. He puts them in this garden. He says, I put you here to work. I put you here to take care of this garden, to care for it. And then there's some significant realities. He's inviting them to join him in co-laboring and working to care for something that God created that was good. The creation's good. Humans are very good. Things are going well. Then we get to chapter 3, right? And in the beginning of chapter 3, we see that humans disobey God because it's so tempting to want to be their own God. It's so tempting to want to know what God knows and to, to step away from that relationship even though God had given them an invitation to join him and to co-labor and co-work with God. 
and everything goes downhill from there, okay? There's a specific part here in, in Genesis 3, verse 17, that I think speaks to this really clearly, specifically having to do with work. So we'll have it up here on the screen, too. Genesis 3. Cursed is the ground because of you, humans. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. All right, so this is a little description. Um, if the first vocation was to care for the earth, this is the reality of now the result of what's going to happen because of this brokenness and this evil entering the world in regards specifically to work. It's going to be a toil. It's going to be hard. There's going to be thorns. Start thinking metaphorically. You've had some thorns in your workplace. I'm sure you have. And so here we have this interesting story. And then it goes to the next chapter, chapter 4, and, and maybe you're, you've kind of, this, this uh, story is coming up to, in you in your mind, okay? So in chapter 4, we see the first co-workers, okay? They happen to be brothers. Their names are Cain and Abel, and they get into a really big disagreement about who's better. Sound familiar? And in this big dis disagreement, they end up going out into the field, their workplace, and uh, Cain and Abel get into a situation that results in Cain murdering Abel, okay? So the first co-worker is one ends up dead. Just saying, this is the beginning of the story. And the family business has never been the same, okay? The concept of the family business, some of you are like, ooh, too close. So, I mean, this is a pretty quick progression, right? Okay, we go from humans, the world, work is good. I think it's pretty clear here. Work is good. It's created good. And then all of a sudden, uh, humans make these decisions and results in work being cursed. Okay? And then first coworker is murdered. All right? Whoa. Do you see what I'm saying about theological ramifications as to why work is hard? And why something that was created feels like really difficult and fe feels like toil? What happened here? What, what happened? Is God punishing us? I want to say, in my opinion, I don't think God's punishing us. I think what's really clear here in verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you humans. God didn't say, listen, you guys messed up. I'm going to curse the ground. This is a result of evil infiltrating the world. God didn't decide he wanted to wreck the ground he created. Evil came in, and it infiltrates something that was good. So when God says, hey, look, this is the reality, he's saying, listen, your choices have repercussions. What happened is going to have a result. It's not about God punishing them with his big thumb from heaven. I think, I think, it's about the fact that there are results from brokenness, sin, evil, whatever word you want to use for it, entering into the beautiful good world that God created. This is, I think, what happened. It's the result of this infiltration. So, okay, I realize I'm using words like evil and infiltration, and that's intense. But I, I kind of feel like that's the best way to explain it. Let me define the way I'm going to use the word evil, okay, just so that you have a frame of reference because I think you could kind of go with it in a few different directions. So here on the screen. This is my definition of evil, okay, for today. The forces of darkness led by our enemy Satan, forces that attempt to steal, kill, and destroy the good things God has created as well as the good things God has done and is doing. I'll read it one more time. The forces of darkness led by our enemy Satan Forces that attempt to steal, kill, and destroy the good things God has created as well as the good things God has done and is doing. And it seems like evil wins some days, doesn't it? But we know by this story that, that light is ultimately victorious, that God's light is ultimately victorious. One of 
Jesus' closest friends, John, writes in 1 John 1, 5, God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Do you see that light and darkness tension there? This is what we're talking about. So I think that we see the, the effects of evil infiltrating the earth all the time. And, and I think we see it manifest itself in sin and brokenness and injustice and pain and lies and darkness and the list could go on. I'd say that is the result of evil infiltrating. And I'm using the word infiltrating intentionally because what I'm trying to say is that it's not like something that God created for good is now bad. It's still good, but it's infiltrated by evil. You see what I'm saying there? That it's something that twists and taints and contaminates something that's good. Something that still can be found as good. We've been talking about this the last few weeks. Like, is, is the world ultimately good or bad? I think it's both. I think it's a really good thing that's infiltrated by evil, which results in some things that look really broken, right? Man, if you don't think that there's evil infiltrating the world, then you're not paying attention at this point, right? So, when it comes to our work life, in my opinion, many of us find the front lines of our engagement with this kind of infiltration of evil is our workplace. We spend a lot of time there. There's a lot of opportunities for us to be effective. So I think that that's where a lot of battles happen for us. Um, we have these battles against good and evil in a lot of spaces in our life. But I think that our work life is one of the main frontiers, right? It's like the front lines for a lot of us. I've heard your stories. I know that it's true. So what does it look like? What does this look like in our vocational life to, to experience the results of evil infiltrating the world? I think you all could come up here and tell a different story about what this looks like. But let me just give you some, some overarching examples of what I think I have seen, mostly from hearing your stories, to be honest, okay? Uh, what I think I see, think it looks like, uh, Mike talked last week about gossip and degrading other people at work and sometimes the peer pressure that comes to put other people down, your boss, coworkers, things like that. There's ethical situations you face in your work all the time, isn't there? Where you're like, this feels like a tension between something God would want and something that's not of God at all. There are people with authority who have a lot of power who make decisions that aren't good and aren't right. And you are often people who are caught in the middle of that. And, and it's this infiltration of evil into something that God created for good. I've heard these stories from you. I've heard the stories of this year who had to face the reality that your company was committing fraud. Some of you this year had to face the reality that you, the place that you work for was, was found out to be exploiting their customers and everybody found out about it. I know some of you have experienced finding out about uh, extramarital affairs that are happening in your workplace between two people and you have wondered, what do I do about that? Do I say something? I even know from some of you that you have been propositioned to be someone to enter into an affair in your workplace. You've had to deal with that. This, I think, is examples of evil infiltrating this place that was designed for work and production and good stuff. You've experienced people saying racist or sexist or other degrading things about groups of humans. Other people, other people groups have been put down. Other political parties have been dehumanized in front of you. And you've had to wonder, what do I say? Whenever people are dehumanizing somebody else, that is evil infiltrating something God created as good every time, you guys. You maybe are a student and you've experienced people cheating or taking advantage of the system and you didn't know what to do about that because it's certainly not fair, it's not right. What's going on there? Why is that happening? 
Another factor I would say that we need to pay attention to when it comes to evil infiltrating the world, I think, is the concept of spiritual warfare. This idea that there's things that are going on that we can't see, this battle between the darkness and the light that affects us. Sometimes you're talking to a coworker or a classmate and you're like, man, they're telling me this story, but I can't help but think that there's something else going on there, something deeper. I'm wondering if it's like spiritual warfare that's happening in life. I mean, if you think that, like start praying because it could be, I think it's real. Some of you feel that in your own life. This is evil infiltrating the space that God created for good. There is a battle going on. So perhaps you have a coworker who's dealing with cancer. That's not from God. Perhaps you have uh, a temptation to be motivated by greed or uh, the love of money or power, all these things. I want to suggest that this battle is really real and it affects all of us. Some of those examples maybe you can't resonate with, but others you probably can. So let me, let me just tee up one kind of overarching concept. I think that the most prevalent way that evil manifests itself in our world today is in our minds, okay? It's these lies about who we are, lies about whose we are, lies about ourselves, about other people, and about God. Some of you are like, wait, I've seen evil manifest itself in other ways. Follow me on this. Do you see how twisted thoughts about our identity, thwarted thoughts about the humanity of other people, the sovereignty of God, is at the core of nearly every evil behavior that humans act out? Think about this with me. Think about the lie of, you know, I'm not worthy of love or purpose. And it leads to just giving in to some of the things you face in life, like addiction or apathy. It leads to all these things that are not good for you. How about the lie that other people are so wrong that we begin to believe that their very existence is evil? Another human being made in God's image. That lie allows love to give in to hate and hate to dehumanize other people, in many cases cause violence and many other evils done human to human in our world, doesn't it? That lie about other people's existence being wrong, just as who they are, is very, is evil. That lie about other people leads us to forget who the actual enemy is, doesn't it? It leads us to believe that there is an enemy that's mostly other hu humans instead of this prince of lies. This enemy that we have that's fighting all of us. And I would say this story is as old as Cain and Abel, isn't it? When people become the enemy. Final lie, God is not on the throne. God is not sovereign. How does that manifest itself? People decide they can be their own God and they can do whatever they want. They want to take control of their lives. Some of us do this sometimes. We want to control everything and it leads to emotional instability and pain and suffering and sometimes inflicting that on other people. It leads to extreme loneliness and a lot of other stuff. Do you see what I mean by the, the, the lies leading to some of the most in difficult evils in the world? Evil shows no boundaries in our world. Evil is the quiet voice that tells you that you're not good enough, and it's the overt, degrading voice that tells other people that they are worthless. Evil is in fudging the numbers and hoping that we won't be found out, and evil is in the complete disregard of people around the world in our industry who are suffering because of our vocation. Evil is in the unethical business practices and also in the secret affairs that are ripping families apart at the seams. Evil is in the systemic forces that take advantage of people who are on the margins and who have the least power. But it's also in the overt power plays dished out by the people at the top. Evil is real. And I bet you all could add to the list that I just gave. So perhaps now you are sufficiently depressed and everyone's freaked out. 
Okay, that wasn't the goal, but if that's how you're feeling, I get it. My goal is to say that we have an amazing opportunity in how we resist evil in our lives, specifically in our workplaces. And I wasn't misspeaking when I said opportunity. I actually think we have an opportunity. We are called to be set apart and sent into the world that God loves. And I think that resisting evil is part of what it means to be set apart. It's a part of what we are sent to do. It's our purpose, to join God in resisting evil. And I think it would be tempting for me at this point to just get like the top three ways to resist evil and call it a day, but I actually think it's a lot more complex than that. Most of you would say that would feel maybe like a little bit trite for the type of things that you've experienced in your life. And so I think that scripture gives us a ton of spaces where it talks about how we do this resisting of evil. But one of my favorite places is in Romans 12. This is one of my favorite chapters. I've talked to others of you who said it's one of your favorite as well. And I want to look at that today. So if you have a Bible, pull out Romans 12. Um, Paul is writing to the church in Rome. And you know what, guys? The church in Rome was dealing with some very different things than we deal with today. But there's some similarities too. There's some wrestling that they're doing with what is good and evil in their cultures and how they engage with it. And Paul is writing to them in the midst of this chapter, in in the midst of this letter, to encourage them and to give them some, I think, tips, honestly, on how to resist evil in these spaces. So if you have a Bible, turn to Romans 12, and I'm going to read it. Now here's what I want you to do. This is really important. I want you to think about an example of something that is manifesting evil in your workplace or in your life, okay? I want you to think right now about a very specific thing. I gave a bunch of examples. It could be something more subtle. It could be something very overt. doesn't matter. I want you just to think about that. And what I'm going to do is allow God's word to speak to you today on behalf of what's going on in your life specifically. I really felt like God wanted to say something to each one of you through this. And sometimes it's hard to tell exactly what God's saying, but pay attention to what sticks out to you and what you notice. And then what I'm going to do is read it again in the message translation by Eugene Peterson, because sometimes just hearing it a little bit differently. So listen for that specific situation. Do you have one in your mind? Not at me if you have a situation you're thinking about. Okay. Christian Ann does like an extra nod because she's trying to be encouraging. Thank you. Okay, so allow what Paul has said 2,000 years ago to speak to you today through God's word, okay? We'll have it up on the screen, but you might want to close your eyes. Just listen to what God might want to reflect about your specific situation. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophecy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. 
Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me read it in this version. Same thing. Listen for what might stick out to you. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you down to, and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best in you and develops well-formed maturity in you. I'm speaking to you out of deep gratitude for all that God has given me, and especially as I have responsibilities in relation to you. Living then, as every one of you does, in pure grace, it's important that you do not misinterpret yourselves as people who are bringing this goodness to God. No, God brings it all to you. The only accurate way to understand ourselves is by what God is and by what he does for us not by what we are and what we do for him. In this way, we are like various parts of a human body. Each part gets its meaning from the body as a whole, not the other way around. The body we're talking about is Christ's body of chosen people. Each of us finds our meaning and function as a part of his body, but as a chopped off finger or a cut off toe, we wouldn't amount to much, would we? So since we find ourselves fashioned into all these excellently formed and marvelously functioning parts in Christ's body, Let's just go ahead and be what we were made to be without enviously or pridefully comparing ourselves with each other or trying to be something we aren't. If you preach, just preach God's message, nothing else. If you help, just help, don't take over. If you teach, stick to your teaching. If you give encouragement, guidance, be careful that you don't get bossy. If you're put in charge, don't manipulate. If you're called to give aid to people in distress, keep your eyes open and be quick to respond. If you work with the disadvantaged, don't let yourself get irritated with them or depressed by them. Keep a smile on your face. Love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil and hold on for dear, for dear life to good. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled and aflame. Be alert servants of the master, cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Help needy Christians be inventive in hospitality. 
Bless your enemies, no cursing under your breath. Laugh with your happy friends when they're happy. Share tears when they're down. Get along with each other, don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies, don't be the great somebody. Don't hit back, discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even, that's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God, I'll take care of it. Our scriptures tell us that if you see your enemy hungry, go buy that person lunch. Or if he's thirsty, get him a drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness. Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good. I'm not sure for each of you what it was that stuck out to you. I really encourage you to share, if there's one or two things, just share that with one person today. Just tell them, hey, I'm not sure if this was God, but this is what stuck out to me in regards to the evil and the, the things that I experience in my life. Let me just give a couple of um, themes that I notice in this. I notice a theme that resisting is not the same as fighting. Almost everywhere in scripture, this idea of resisting is about standing firm, not going after, like fighting fire with fire. Did you hear that in there? It's not about evil coming up against evil. You, you resist evil by doing good. Pretty simple concept, but it's really difficult to do sometimes. It's not that it's passive, right? You hear, defend the weak, give to people who are in need, love your enemy. It's not passive, but that's different than fighting because fighting turns into a striving, and striving is something we can't sustain. It just gets us into more of an entanglement with evil in the first place. Resistance to evil is something that we do by joining in what God is doing in the good. Redeeming the things that are still good about what God has created because it's still there. I think there's also a temptation to withdraw sometimes and to back away and say, well, if that's evil, I want to stay away from it. But you don't hear that here, do you? Resisting is about staying in it. The armor of God talks about standing firm. In Exodus, God says to God's people, be still because I will fight for you. It doesn't say run away and hide. It says be still, be present, stay in it. Don't quit. I also noticed the theme, the second thing is that it starts with God. Did you hear that over and over? Let God help you change your mind and heart. Fix your attention to God. Let God bring out the best in you. We are Christ's body. You need to pray hard, turn to God. That kind of spiritual warfare changes the situation in our lives. I heard third, being a humble servant. What does it mean to be a humble servant? You, did you hear that throughout that whole passage? This idea of being willing to not have all the power, being willing to not have all the control, to play second fiddle, I love that. What does it look like to do that in our lives? What does it look like to give credit to the person whose idea it actually was? Right, it feels really good when someone's like, great idea, Stephanie, and I'm like, thank you, I knew it was John's. But like, just don't be like, no, that was his idea. Hey, wait, stop, that was not my idea, that was someone else's. Being a humble servant. Fourth, and finally, I think what we see here is that the little things are what matters most. I don't know about you, but when I think about resisting evil, I start thinking about what grand gestures I'm going to do to stop these evil forces like it's Star Wars or something. That was a joke. But I do sometimes think about Star Wars with this. Don't, does anybody else think about Star Wars already? Okay, I knew some of you did. Like, it's not about the grand gesture, I don't think. If, if resisting evil is about good, it's about these everyday things, you guys. I think they're doable things. Cry with the coworker that's going through chemo. Be present with somebody who's excited. Smile more. Did you hear that? Just smile more. Practice hospitality. Be the best version of who you are and what you're gifted to be. Don't try to be somebody else. Be a good friend. Let God be the judge. Don't judge everybody. If you have something that somebody needs, give it to them. 
Practice blessing the people who you might see as enemies because they're not the actual enemy. These are actually pretty little things. And at the very beginning of that passage, you see at the core of all of this, it has to do with our minds. It has to do with letting God transform our minds. That's, the, that's maybe the most famous word in this couple of verses in this passage. Let God be the one who renews your mind. Don't allow it to be something that just fits the cultures of this world. Doesn't mean we have to be separate from everything, but what does it mean to actually be people who are set apart to be sent back into something? I think it's about doing good. Resisting evil ultimately is about participating more and more in what is good, not offering curses against evil. That's how we got here in the first place. So, someday, we're going to see clearly. Someday, what's in our minds will be only what is true about ourselves. Someday, when we see our neighbor, we're going to see the face of Jesus in their face all the time. Someday, we will see the true value of our work, even though it's such a toil right now. Someday, we will see God for the true God that he is a God of love, not the creepy guy with the long white beard trying to, to judge you all the time. That's a twisted view of God. I don't know what yours is. Someday we will see God for who he actually is. And someday there will be no more evil, no more pain, no more suffering. And that is the day that not we, but God, will defeat evil. In the meantime, we resist by doing good. We join Jesus at times as suffering servants, right? People who resist evil by doing what is good and what is right, even if it's not the best for us. I'm going to have the band come back up and... We're going to finish as we have been now every week in communion. I think it's such a perfect thing for us to do. When we come and we take communion, we're identifying with Jesus' body that was broken for us and Jesus' blood that was shed. And you guys, this, Jesus' death and resurrection is the most amazing picture of resisting evil with good. It doesn't get much more amazing than that. And most of us won't have to physically lose our lives to resist evil in the world but Jesus does call us, in a sense, to lose our life so that we can gain it, doesn't he? What do you need to surrender to God today in order to be a person who resists evil? Because maybe it's your reputation. Maybe it's comfort or ease. Maybe you have to surrender the sense of control of your own life that you so desperately want to cling on to. I don't know what that is for you. But surrender is actually the beginning of true freedom. Surrender in, is the place where we start to have freedom from the chains metaphorically and sometimes physically in our world, that evil uses to hold us back from everything that God created us to be. Jesus' love and mercy has the power to defeat, defeat evil and to break every chain, amen? Every chain. So if you want to participate with us in communion, you don't have to be a member of our church. You just come forward in a minute. There'll be people who can serve it for you. You take the bread, you dip it into the cup, and then there's going to be some people standing on these walls who would love to pray for you. You can just ask them to pray for you. You can give them a specific request. But man, given the topic today, we could all use some prayer, right? So let them do that for you. Thanks for being here on this little bit warmer day than you'd expect in September in this building. 
Um, we love being here in Sheridan School and the opportunity we have to worship God here freely. I love that they're celebrating the diversity of this school. Uh, this is one of the most diverse schools as far as the student body that exists in Minneapolis, which is a huge celebration and a wonderful thing for the kids here. Um, before I can start uh, jumping into the scripture today, let's just pray and thank God for this opportunity we have to be here and pray God's blessing over this place. Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who promises to be with us, that you are Emmanuel, you are the with us God, and we pray that you would be here in this school uh, and you would be drawing near to these kids, to these teachers, this faculty and staff. Uh, it, is, it is difficult to come and learn and it is difficult to teach kids and to create an environment for learning. And God, I pray that you would fill those teachers, uh, those faculty, the parents of these kids, fill them with your strength. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be here and to worship you, and we ask that your presence would not only be here now, but would continue to be here in this school and that it would make a difference, God. We thank you and we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, we are in the middle of a conversation that we're calling For the Sake of the World. For the Sake of the World. And we're asking a question, which is, what is the role of Christians in relationship to the world? And if you look back over the last couple of weeks, we encourage you to listen back. We've engaged this topic in a number of ways. But we're specifically asking this question in regards to our vocational lives, okay? So specifically our work lives. And we recognize that work looks like a lot of different things for the people here in this room. For some of you, it looks like maybe what people would assume going to a job in a specific location. Some of you work your job from home. Some of you, your job is to caretake for kids or older adults in need. Uh, some of you, your job is to learn right now. You are in school, and that is your main vocation. For some of you, your main vocation right now is looking for a job, and that is work too, isn't it? And so when we're asking the question, uh, what is the role of Christians in relationship to the world when it comes to vocation, we're talking about all of those areas. So apply it to what that looks like for you. And what we've talked about the last couple of weeks is the calling that we have as the people of God, to be set apart and sent into the world that God loves. To be set apart and sent into the world that God loves. Which is different than be set apart and withdraw from the world because it's scary, right? It's also different than jump into the world and not think about what it means to be a Christian in the world. So we've been talking about that tension because it certainly is one. We have a purpose. We are invited to join God because God loves the world. We join God's mission for the sake of the world that God loves. This is an invitation that we have to join God in his work through our vocations and other areas of our life. So uh, today, um, I asked you this question, what parts of your vocation do you like and dislike? And I'm not sure which one, like maybe some of you lean towards sharing what you liked and some of you lean towards sharing what you disliked. When I thought about the question, I went right to what I dislike. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and I have a number of different vocations, but I thought about my vocations in the past. And I realized something kind of weird. Uh, every single job, nearly every single job I've ever had has involved cleaning toilets. And including this one, okay? <laughs> it's involved cleaning toilets uh, when they overflow. Um, it's also involved trying to shut off rushing toilets, which I did last Sunday in the toilet over there. And uh, it's also involved some really messy circumstances like uh, urinals that overflow and you have to wade through ankle deep water to turn it off. You're welcome for that visual. Urinal water. For whatever reason, it's a part of every vocation that I have. So I'm at this point assuming that God's going to use that somehow in my life to keep me humbled. Or I don't know. I don't know what it is. But it is definitely on the list of things I dislike the most about every job I've ever had is whatever situation I seem to have to have with the toilet. All right? It's not my favorite. 
It's pretty interesting because uh, there's a lot of studies done on job satisfaction and what people like and dislike about their job, and I just found a couple that I thought were really interesting. Uh, people on LinkedIn, do you know what LinkedIn is? So this is like an online way to kind of put your, your resume out there. I think a lot of times people are looking for other jobs or kind of hoping that maybe somebody will be like, hey, you seem interesting, come work for us. I'm, I'm not totally sure. Um, but on LinkedIn, they did a study recently, and it said that 80% of people on LinkedIn either kind of don't like their job or hate their job, somewhere between kind of don't like to hate. 80%, which might be why they're on LinkedIn, because they're just kind of like, please, anybody, take me out of here. Um, but that is an interesting stat, in my opinion. There's also a, a, a now like kind of an overall vocational study that was done a few years ago on job satisfaction, showing that job satisfaction has been steadily declining over the last 20, 30, 40 years for various reasons. And at this point, people who would say they can tolerate their job is only at 47%, okay? Everybody else dislikes to hates, all right, in, in general. So this is not just the LinkedIn population, but job satisfaction in the US overall based on research. So that means that over 50% of all of you <laughs> actually dislike most of what you're doing in your job to the point where you'd say, I am dissatisfied with this experience in a lot of different ways. Isn't that interesting? that people dislike their job that severely. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you're in the 47% who are satisfied or the 53% who aren't. Those add up to 100, right? Okay, I'm not a math person. I'm not gonna ask you to designate which one you are, but I bet you can kind of know if you're one of those or if you're kind of on the fence in your job satisfaction. And I, I think there's actually some pretty deep theological reasons why we have such a hard time with our work. There are some some parts of what God has done in the world and the way that humans have responded to God that have created the, the difficulties around our work life. Because if you haven't experienced difficulties in your work life, it's kind of like you will. It's not if, it's a when, right? I want to look at a couple different passages to talk about this. And today I want to focus on a topic uh, within this conversation on for the sake of the world of the role we have to play as Christians in resisting evil, okay? And I realize that's a big phrase, and I'm going to unpack it, but what does it mean for us as people who follow Jesus? What is our role in resisting evil in the world? And I think it's at the core, this, this question is at the core of why work is so hard. It's at the core of why we often are dealing with these challenges in our work and other parts of our life that we face. I think this, this question of the, the role of resisting evil is at the core. So I'm going to look at a, two different passages, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament to kind of unpack this for us. So I want to start in Genesis, okay? The beginning of the story. What happened at the beginning of the story that shapes our theological understanding of evil and the role of work and some of that? So if you turn to Genesis 3, I'm going to read that in a second, but let me just kind of tee it up for you. So m some of you are familiar with the story in Genesis of creation. And in Genesis 2, by the time we get to chapter 2, God's creating the world and everything in it, and he creates humans. He calls them very good. He puts them in this garden. He says, I put you here to work. I put you here to take care of this garden, to care for it. And then there's some significant realities. He's inviting them to join him in co-laboring and working to care for something that God created that was good. The creation's good. Humans are very good. Things are going well. Then we get to chapter 3, right? And in the beginning of chapter 3, we see that humans disobey God because it's so tempting to want to be their own God. It's so tempting to want to know what God knows and to, to step away from that relationship even though God had given them an invitation to join him and to co-labor and co-work with God. And everything goes downhill from there, okay? There's a specific part here in, in Genesis 3, verse 17, that I think speaks to this really clearly 
specifically having to do with work. So we'll have it up here on the screen too. Genesis 3. Cursed is the ground because of you, humans. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. All right, so this is a little description. Um, if the first vocation was to care for the earth, this is the reality of now the result of what's going to happen because of this brokenness and this evil entering the world in regards specifically to work. It's going to be a toil. It's going to be hard. There's going to be thorns. Start thinking metaphorically. You've had some thorns in your workplace. I'm sure you have. And so here we have this interesting story. And then it goes to the next chapter, chapter 4, and, and maybe you're, you've kind of this... this uh, stories coming up to in you in your mind, okay? So in chapter 4, we see the first co-workers, okay? They happen to be brothers. Their names are Cain and Abel, and they get into a really big disagreement about who's better. Sound familiar? And in this big dis disagreement, they end up going out into the field, their workplace, and uh, Cain and Abel get into a situation that results in Cain murdering Abel, okay? So the first co-workers, one ends up dead. Just saying, this is the beginning of the story. And the family business has never been the same, Okay? The concept of the family business, some of you are like, ooh, too close. So, I mean, this is a pretty quick progression, right? Okay, we go from humans, the world, work is good. I think it's pretty clear here. Work is good. It's created good. And then all of a sudden, uh, humans make these decisions and results in work being cursed. Okay? And then first coworker is murdered. All right? Whoa. Do you see what I'm saying about theological ramifications as to why work is hard? and why something that was created feels like really difficult and fe feels like toil? What happened here? What, what happened? Is God punishing us? I want to say, in my opinion, I don't think God's punishing us. I think what's really clear here in verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you humans. God didn't say, listen, you guys messed up. I'm going to curse the ground. This is a result of evil infiltrating the world. God didn't decide he wanted to wreck the ground he created. Evil came in, and it infiltrates something that was good. So when God says, hey, look, this is the reality, he's saying, listen, your choices have repercussions. What happened is going to have a result. It's not about God punishing them with his big thumb from heaven. I think, I think, it's about the fact that there are results from brokenness, sin, evil, whatever word you want to use for it, entering into the beautiful good world that God created. This is, I think, what happened. It's the result of this infiltration. So, okay, I realize I'm using words like evil and infiltration, and that's intense, but I, I kind of feel like that's the best way to explain it. Let me define the way I'm going to use the word evil, okay, just so that you have a frame of reference, because I think you could kind of go with it in a few different directions. So, here on the screen. This is my definition of evil, okay, for today. The forces of darkness, led by our enemy Satan, Forces that attempt to steal, kill, and destroy the good things God has created as well as the good things God has done and is doing. I'll read it one more time. The forces of darkness led by our enemy Satan, forces that attempt to steal, kill, and destroy the good things God has created as well as the good things God has done and is doing. And it seems like evil wins some days, doesn't it? But we know by this story that, that light is ultimately victorious, that God's light is ultimately victorious. Jesus' closest friends, John, writes in 1 John 1, 5, God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. 
And if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Do you see that light and darkness tension there? This is what we're talking about. So I think that we see the, the effects of evil infiltrating the earth all the time. And, and I think we see it manifest itself in sin and brokenness and injustice and pain and lies and darkness and the list could go on. I'd say that is the result of evil infiltrating. And I'm using the word infiltrating intentionally because what I'm trying to say is that it's not like something that God created for good is now bad. It's still good, but it's infiltrated by evil. You see what I'm saying there? That it's something that twists and taints and contaminates something that's good. Something that still can be found as good. We've been talking about this the last few weeks. Like, is, is the world ultimately good or bad? I think it's both. I think it's a really good thing that's infiltrated by evil, which results in some things that look really broken, right? Man, if you don't think that there's evil infiltrating the world, then you're not paying attention at this point, right? So, when it comes to our work life, in my opinion, many of us find the front lines of our engagement with this kind of infiltration of evil is our workplace. We spend a lot of time there. There's a lot of opportunities for us to be effective, so I think that that's where a lot of battles happen for us. Um, we have these battles against good and evil in a lot of spaces in our life, but I think that our work life is one of the main frontiers, right? It's like the front lines for a lot of us. I've heard your stories. I know that it's true. So what does it look like? What does this look like in our vocational life to, to experience the results of evil infiltrating the world? I think you all could come up here and tell a different story about what this looks like, but let me just give you some, some overarching examples of what I think I have seen, mostly from hearing your stories, to be honest, okay? Uh, what I think I see, think it looks like, um, Mike talked last week about gossip and degrading other people at work and sometimes the peer pressure that comes to put other people down, your boss, coworkers, things like that. There's ethical situations you face in your work all the time, isn't there? Where you're like, this feels like a tension between something God would want and something that's not of God at all. There are people with authority who have a lot of power who make decisions that aren't good and aren't right. And you are often people who are caught in the middle of that. And, and it's this infiltration of evil into something that God created for good. I've heard these stories from you. I've heard the stories of this year who had to face the reality that your company was committing fraud. Some of you this year had to face the reality that you, the place that you work for was, was found out to be exploiting their customers. And everybody found out about it. I know some of you have experienced finding out about uh, extramarital affairs that are happening in your workplace between two people, and you have wondered, what do I do about that? Do I say something? I even know from some of you that you have been propositioned to be someone to enter into an affair in your workplace. You've had to deal with that. This, I think, is examples of evil infiltrating this place that was designed for work and production and good stuff. You've experienced people saying racist or sexist or other degrading things about groups of humans. Other people, other people groups have been put down. Other political parties have been dehumanized in front of you. And you've had to wonder, what do I say? Whenever people are dehumanizing somebody else, that is evil infiltrating something God created as good. Every time, you guys. You maybe are a student and you've experienced people cheating or taking advantage of the system and you didn't know what to do about that because it's certainly not fair, it's not right. What's going on there? Why is that happening? Another factor I would say that we need to pay attention to when it comes to evil infiltrating the world, I think is the concept of spiritual warfare. 
This idea that there's things that are going on that we can't see, this battle between the darkness and the light that affects us. Sometimes you're talking to a coworker or a classmate and you're like, man, they're telling me this story, but I can't help but think that there's something else going on there, something deeper. I'm wondering if it's like spiritual warfare that's happening in their life. I mean, if you think that, like start praying because it could be, I think it's real. Some of you feel that in your own life. This is evil infiltrating the space that God created for good. There is a battle going on. So perhaps you have a coworker who's dealing with cancer. That's not from God. Perhaps you have uh, a temptation to be motivated by greed or uh, the love of money or power, all these things. I want to suggest that this battle is really real and it affects all of us. Some of those examples maybe you can't resonate with, but others you probably can. So let me, let me just tee up one kind of overarching concept. I think that the most prevalent way that evil manifests itself in our world today is in our minds, okay? It's these lies about who we are, lies about whose we are, lies about ourselves, about other people, and about God. Some of you are like, wait, I've seen evil manifest itself in other ways. Follow me on this. Do you see how twisted thoughts about our identity, thwarted thoughts about the humanity of other people, the sovereignty of God, is at the core of nearly every evil behavior that humans act out? Think about this with me. Think about the lie of, you know, I'm not worthy of love or purpose. And it leads to just giving in to some of the things you face in life, like addiction or apathy. It leads to all these things that are not good for you. How about the lie that other people are so wrong that we begin to believe that their very existence is evil? Another human being made in God's image. That lie allows love to give in to hate and hate to dehumanize other people, in many cases cause violence and many other evils done human to human in our world, doesn't it? That lie about other people's existence being wrong, just as who they are, is very, is evil. That lie about other people leads us to forget who the actual enemy is, doesn't it? It leads us to believe that there is an enemy that's mostly other hu humans instead of this prince of lies. This enemy that we have that's fighting all of us. And I would say this story is as old as Cain and Abel, isn't it? When people become the enemy. Final lie, God is not on the throne, God is not sovereign. How does that manifest itself? People decide they can be their own God and they can do whatever they want. They wanna take control of their lives, some of us do this sometimes, we wanna control everything and it leads to emotional instability and pain and suffering and sometimes inflicting that on other people, it leads to extreme loneliness and a lot of other stuff. Do you see what I mean by the, the, the lies leading to some of the most in, difficult evils in the world? Evil shows no boundaries in our world. Evil is the quiet voice that tells you that you're not good enough, and it's the overt, degrading voice that tells other people that they are worthless. Evil is in fudging the numbers and hoping that we won't be found out, and evil is in the complete disregard of people around the world in our industry who are suffering because of our vocation. Evil is in the unethical business practices and also in the secret affairs that are ripping families apart at the seams. Evil is in the systemic forces that take advantage of people who are on the margins and who have the least power, but it's also in the overt power plays dished out by the people at the top. Evil is real, and I bet you all could add to the list that I just gave. So perhaps now you are sufficiently depressed and everyone's freaked out. Okay, that wasn't the goal, but if that's how you're feeling, I get it. My goal is to say that we have an amazing opportunity 
in how we resist evil in our lives, specifically in our workplaces. And I wasn't misspeaking when I said opportunity. I actually think we have an opportunity. We are called to be set apart and sent into the world that God loves. And I think that resisting evil is part of what it means to be set apart. It's a part of what we are sent to do. It's our purpose, to join God in resisting evil. And I think it would be tempting for me at this point to just give like, the top three ways to resist evil and call it a day, but I actually think it's a lot more complex than that. Most of you would say that would f feel maybe like a little bit trite <laughs> for the type of things that you've experienced in your life. And so I think that scripture gives us a ton of spaces where it talks about how we do this resisting of evil. But one of my favorite places is in Romans 12. This is one of my favorite chapters. I've talked to others of you who said it's one of your favorite as well. And I want to look at that today. So if you have a Bible, pull out Romans 12. Um, Paul is right to the church in Rome. And you know what, guys? The church in Rome was dealing with some very different things than we deal with today. But there's some similarities too. There's some wrestling that they're doing with what is good and evil in their cultures and how they engage with it. And Paul is writing to them in the midst of this chapter, in the midst of this letter, to encourage them and to give them some, I think, tips, honestly, on how to resist evil in these spaces. So if you have a Bible, turn to Romans 12, and I'm going to read it. Now here's what I want you to do. This is really important. I want you to think about an example of something that is manifesting evil in your workplace or in your life, okay? I want you to think right now about a very specific thing. I gave a bunch of examples. It could be something more subtle. It could be something very overt. It doesn't matter. I want you just to think about that. And what I'm going to do is allow God's word to speak to you today on behalf of what's going on in your life specifically. I really felt like God wanted to say something to each one of you through this. And sometimes it's hard to tell exactly what God's saying, but pay attention to what sticks out to you and what you notice. And then what I'm going to do is read it again in the message translation by Eugene Peterson, because sometimes just hearing it a little bit differently. So listen for that specific situation. Do you have one in your mind? Nod at me if you have a situation that you're thinking about. Okay. Christian Ann does like an extra nod because she's trying to be encouraging. Thank you. Okay, so allow what Paul has said 2,000 years ago to speak to you today through God's word, okay? We'll have it up on the screen, but you might want to close your eyes. Just listen to what God might want to reflect about your specific situation. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophecy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. 
patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me read it in this version. Same thing. Listen for what might stick out to you. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you down to, and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best in you and develops well-formed maturity in you. I'm speaking to you out of deep gratitude for all that God has given me, and especially as I have responsibilities in relation to you. Living then, as every one of you does, in pure grace, it's important that you do not misinterpret yourselves as people who are bringing this goodness to God. No, God brings it all to you. The only accurate way to understand ourselves is by what God is and by what he does for us, not by what we are and what we do for him. In this way, we are like various parts of a human body. Each part gets its meaning from the body as a whole, not the other way around. The body we're talking about is Christ's body of chosen people. Each of us finds our meaning and function as a part of his body, but as a chopped off finger or a cut off toe, we wouldn't amount to much, would we? So since we find ourselves fashioned into all these excellently formed and marvelously functioning parts in Christ's body, let's just go ahead and be 